Is mainstream school failing your kids? The pandemic, with all the changes to schooling and daily life, is a moment of opportunity to rethink the educational path that works best for you and for your kids. So the question is, how can we as parents find alternative solutions that aren't necessarily having to do it all ourselves or pay for programs that we can't afford? I'm Jerry Kirk. And I'm Graham Kirk. Join us as we talk with families thriving on their own path. We shared practical tips, wins, and challenges they've been through to help you on yours. We interview educational experts and parent entrepreneurs with education solutions for the modern age, so parents wanting a better alternative can make confident, informed choices. Welcome to the Modern Education Movement Podcast. You're ready for change. And so are we. My guest today, Lois Letchford, had big dreams and hopes for her young boy, Nicholas, like all moms do. So after her son entered formal education, those dreams soon came crashing down. Her son failed first grade. And at that time, his prognosis seemed really dire. Testing had revealed that he could only read 10 words. He displayed no strengths and was also told that he had a low IQ. And on top of all of that, if that wasn't enough already, She was also told by a teacher that her son was, quote, the worst child I'd seen in 20 years of teaching. That's a lot for a mom to take in. And on top of all of that, the diagnosis compounded by really some fixed ideas on how to teach reading. Now, given all of that, she could have easily given up and just accepted this diagnosis. But as a mom, she was really driven to remove the label worst child ever and to see him achieve at the highest levels. And it wasn't easy. And through that process, she also discovered her own dyslexia. And through that, examined her reading failure caused her to adapt and change lessons for her son. And fortunately for her and her son, the results were dramatic. Lois soon became a literacy specialist and started assisting other, quote, failing students. And now she's the co-founder of the Teaching Students with Dyslexia Writing and Reading Program. For me, Lois and her son Nicholas are really an inspiration for parents teachers and listeners to believe in themselves, to seek solutions beyond the average, and that they can too achieve the impossible. So today we're going to explore their story and the world of dyslexia. And Lois, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you, Jerry. I'm delighted to be here. I love talking about literacy and education. Yeah, it's clearly it's become, you know, a real passion. And so often, you know, as, as entrepreneurs, our solutions for the world or our drive for the world come through, you know, a real painful point in our in our lives and and you've certainly turned what was a, a really difficult perhaps could have been a catastrophic situation into a real gift it was a catastrophic situation and it was only recently you know when i'm talking to my son my son is now 33 how's he doing by the way he's doing well he works as a consultant for oxford policy management and look honestly that's all i can really tell you he's a mathematical modeler if that means anything. And with COVID, when COVID came on, surprisingly, he was excited because he said, this is what I've worked for my whole life, to do all the mathematical modelling of an infectious disease. So he was doing mathematical models for various countries through his work to say, this is what's going to happen. And this is what, you know, and, and it all just gets too hard for me. I don't understand my son's work. Well, he's certainly come a long way from being labeled the worst 
child and 20 years of teaching clearly that was a little bit a little bit off the mark (laughs) well you know it's it's fascinating the way people take data irrespective of whether the data is correct or incorrect and then make judgments and then they had you know his poor behavior not poor behavior his withdrawing behavior in first grade and the withdrawing behavior said to them your son can't learn he stared into space he can't learn and when he was tested he actually just refused to cooperate and they then the, the school district says he can't learn he can't do it through the lens that they had in terms of determining what learning should look like right and how how people should experience that and it's worth setting right up the front nicholas had ear infections from 8 to 18 months first up it changes the brain you don't hear the language you're not receiving it the brain cells that are not hearing language don't develop as they should so you have a lower performance in language what he was incredibly good at were puzzles so the puzzle component of his brain was still growing and developing at a rate that was phenomenal but because we look at children firstly we look at them and say can they walk and do those physical things and then they say we say can they speak and when their speech is slower and their response to instructions is slower we immediately charge off and say well they can't do it particularly when you know when those um, assessments are kind of standardized at, based on age that can relate i mean my my kids didn't go through primary school or public school and you know my, my one son david it actually took him until age 11 to really start becoming really proficient with with reading and and from what i've read developmentally that's not all that surprising necessarily for for boys you know and and now he's a he's an amazing reader he does fine but had he been in a school like your son had been at that early age who knows the trauma we all would have gone through um, because there's no way he would have been reading proficiently at that time so i can i can empathize What drives me about my story is that it happened by mistake. It happened by accident that my husband is a professor and we had six months in another country while he had study leave and the family goes with him. And it was during that time that I started to work with Nicholas and by doing normal letters and sounds and that Nicholas couldn't do anything. And all I knew was that I had to change it. And so I turned around and just made learning fun. Make learning fun was the motto, and with the fun came poetry. The poetry gave us the rhyming words, which gave us the story, which gave us the illustrations, which gave us the language. And it was transformative. And the poetry just exploded everything. And it changed my opinion of teaching, of Nicholas, of how to approach, everything. Just astonishing. And when I go back to teaching students who come to me, I see them as I did Nicholas. What do I have to do to get you to read? So for Nicholas, his gateway was was the poetry. You found kind of like the, the hook, right? The draw, the motivation. So let's actually back up a little bit. And perhaps not everyone who's listening kind of really understands fully what dyslexia is. So maybe you could explain a little bit about that. And yeah, just for our listeners. To explain a little bit about dyslexia. Dyslexia is a differently wired brain. And I would say it doesn't take in language or it really shows up when it comes to reading and writing. So I have to be careful about what I say because many students who are dyslexic are also incredibly articulate. When it comes to reading and writing, they don't get it through the normal channels. And I think that's the easiest way to say it. They don't 
get reading through the normal channels. And by normal channels, what, what do you mean there? Through the way they're taught in the classroom. Everyone else is picking it up. This child or these two or three children are not picking it up. And that's when it becomes obvious. What else do we have to do? And the numbers of dyslexic children in the class varies. And will vary on the teaching method and how the teacher can change the teaching to include or exclude children. Uh, really what, it, what you're saying, I think, is just that it's no big surprise, right? That people learn differently, right? We have different, different modes, different modalities that are helpful. Some of us are better listeners, some are, are better visually, some are more kinesthetic, right? I know I really learn well through examples, right? Processing is much better that way than sort of theoretically trying to figure stuff out. So, so then so when you were working with, with Nicholas then, for him then it was, as you said, the, the poetry. And then from that, uh, this sort of became a passion for you then. And you decided, you know, I was able to, how, how did it go from, wow, Nicholas is, is reading now, or even like even just from those, that little spark. I mean, why don't we even just start there? Like, so you're starting to get these breakthroughs, right? How did that start to shift, you know, your thinking? And also just even for Nicholas, did you see some changes in him as he started to produce this, this ability to read? Enormous changes, not little ones, enormous changes. What happened was with the poetry, I started with the short vowel sounds, very simple poems, easy stuff, funny stuff. And that poetry grew to include, you know, the double O's. We went to short vowels, be long vowels, but the double O's come up as in cook, look and book. And I wrote a poem, not about cooking, but about Captain Cook, the last of the great explorers. And we're taught reading it and reading it and reading the poem and, and I could see blankness on Nicholas. And then we happened to be at the museum and saw this globe from 1550. And I said, Nicholas, look, there's a gap in the map. There's no Australia because Australia's our home. And the light bulb went off on Nicholas and he started to ask questions I could not answer. He said, who came before Captain Cook? That's easy, Nicholas. That was Christopher Columbus. And he said, and who came before Columbus? Now, I'm in shock because in my view, there was no one before Columbus. Or there might have been, but we they didn't leave records. So that leaves us. But his thinking blew me away. And because we were in Oxford, we could then go to the Bodleian Library and say, where could we see a Ptolemy map? And the lady reaches round behind the counter, puts a Ptolemy map, book of Ptolemy maps on the desk and said, this will be five pound, please. Well, Ptolemy may be someone you have not heard of before, but Ptolemy lived 250 AD and drew maps, never leaving the shores of Alexandria, with information coming from sailors. And Ptolemy's map was Columbus's latest map. Columbus's map was over a thousand years old, and because it was inaccurate, because they didn't have the Americas in the middle, Ptolemy underestimated the size of the world. So Columbus said it's only going to be a few days across the Atlantic Ocean to get to China. And with that mistake, it allowed Columbus to go. <laughs> So that that exploration, that learning, put a spark in Nicholas. And I'm watching this kid who really struggled so much with the decoding just start to fly. And as we looked at this book of Ptolemy maps, I'm taking in a little bit. Nicholas just drools over it. And it just shocks me that he is so engaged in something that is much higher level than I expected. I did teach him decoding, and that was going at a snail's pace. 
But it was okay because he was getting it. But his thinking was off the planet for a seven-year-old. And seeing that difference shocked me. But the learning, you know, we were doing, we were doing it together. We're not only doing it in our classroom, we're in the city, we're looking at maps, we're at the British Library, we're looking at maps. And then you start to connect history. And it was all just learning for him and me just became so exciting. And it's a feeling I've never forgotten that this was just the most exciting thing in the world. And it was a contrast, not the classroom teacher, but the reading teacher who is only giving Nicholas letters and sounds and giving him the same as everybody else. And in fact, she gave really poor examples. And this is written about in the literature. This, this is written about in the literature. What am I talking about? Why do children fail to learn to read? And it comes from a paper by Brian Camborn, Professor Brian Camborn, who's an Australian. He's now about 86. He started teaching in 1956. And he wrote an old paper and an updated version out this year on the conditions of learning. He said, why do children fail? We give incomplete examples or we give examples that children cannot engage with. And that's exactly what happened with the reading teacher. And you can't see past, the kid is, can't learn, he's really slow, and you what you fail to do is fail to look at the teaching. So with all that, on top of that, as I'm teaching Nicholas, I'm starting to look at my learning because I went through elementary school reading words and not comprehending. So when I go back to become a reading specialist, I'm saying, what happened with Nicholas? What happened with me? So now your focus, as you said, is, I mean, this is kind of your, your, your passion now. You have a, you have a, a program. Maybe you could t- tell us a little bit about how you help now other students who are dealing with uh, dyslexia, writing and reading challenges. I'm old. I've been doing this for over 25 years now. And what happened once I taught Nicholas is that I became a reading specialist. And we moved from Australia to Lubbock, Texas. And when I'm in Lubbock, This is the background to the program. When I'm in Lubbock, I met a mother whose 13-year-old son was non-reading. He'd spent four years in a phonics-only reading program and came out unable to read a sentence accurately. And I said, I think I know what's wrong. I taught him to read over the summer. At the end of that time, the mother wrote to the school district and said, you employ this woman or I sue you. I got employed. And with that, I was district reading specialist taking children who'd failed all reading programs And my task was simply teach them to read. Not use this program, not do that. Your goal, teach them to read. And my children came to me at age seven through to age 16. And with that background, you know you can't just do teaching decoding. And that's where a lot of people get stuck. You have to do Orton-Gillingham. You have to do this. You have to do that. And I know that there's a language problem. So that's the background to the reading writing program that I've written. And by language, do you mean just basically communicating with the child in the language that works for them? Well, it's understanding what goes wrong in when children read. One, obviously, they can't decode. There's no memory. They can't do these things. But you've got to look at what's stopping them from decoding. What's stopping them from putting a sentence together? And then you come to the high-frequency words. You know, those little words that we must learn? The in, the of, the it. And often they are taught through rote just learn it, just learn it, just learn it. And what dyslexics do really well is create pictures. So what I do is create a picture for every single one of those little words. Uh, Of, the word of, 
And this is what I'll say to give me a sentence with the word of, OF, and they'll go blank. And you say, a page is part of a book. There's your example. One page is part of a book. My eyes are part of my face and so on. And my ears are part of my face. So my children are reading, they're writing, they're creating a picture, they're making sense of it. Oh, I know that word of. Giving it context. Instead of saying, oh, here's of, you just have to learn it. You say, you know this word. This word's in your language. You use it all the time. Ah, I do. And simple things like the word T-O. And this is fascinating. T-O. I ask my students to give me a sentence with the word T-O. And what do they say to me? I have two hands. Give me a sentence with the word for, F-O-R. A dog has four legs. Why can't this child learn to read? Because they don't have the right meaning connected to the right word. Words with multiple meaning cause children enormous problems and particularly dyslexic children because they see the concrete, they fail to see the abstract and that's noted in the academic literature too. And when we teach them, this is what you as a reader have to do. You know, you've got these two words, T-O and T-W-O. You can't muddle them up. They sound the same in oral language, in written language, they're two different words. They're written like this and this is what it means. And once you change the teaching, the outcomes change. It took me a long time to learn that, for, you know, with teaching these children, particularly with Nicholas. But it took me a long time to work out that these children who are 10, 11 and 12 haven't worked out how reading works. And they're giving me sentences like, T.O., I have two hands. Well, why did they get into school? Or how come they've been in school for so long and still don't know that T.O. means let's go to the park, let's go to school? Why is that the failure? That's when I get passionate because the failure is in the teaching. Has the teaching changed much since the time of Nicholas? It's the same problems are persisting. Why is that? And if you've got a track record of 20 years now and, and getting, getting results, what's getting in the way of helping these kids be more successful? I have specialized in teaching children on the lowest percentiles. Nicholas's acceptable label was second percentile speech language impaired. To teach a child like that, you have to get every single thing right. You can't make a mistake or they don't get it. You know, and then research is really challenging because you've got to have a control group and a trial group. Finding the numbers to do the control and the trial, you're not going to deal with kids like Nicholas. And you'll get away with teaching decoding and they'll get it. And that's the gap, I think. That's the difference. But because, you know, like I said earlier, because I struggled and just read words, it has me questioning what went wrong. Why did this happen? And here's the other part that's difficult. Once you become a skilled reader, it's very difficult to see the world of an unskilled reader. Well, it's like the difference between T.O. and T.W.O. You can't even imagine how did they get this wrong? How can this go wrong? And secondly, I've written an academic paper that is in publication now talking about the word it because you look at the word it, it's a meaningless word. And it really struck me, I'm reading to these three children a simple book called R said stalk, and it's R said stalk. He pecked at the egg, but it would not break. And then the next page is double page spread of hippopotamus sat on it. Lion bit it. Someone rolled on it. And, and I said to them at the end, now, what's the it? Three words on a page. And they, all three of them, put their hand, it, it is nothing. And it's not that they don't know, because if you said to a kid, you dropped your hat, pick it up, 
they would know what to do, wouldn't they? But when it comes to reading, it comes down to how we teach. If we say to the kid, it is nothing, you can't, you, it doesn't matter, we're then ignoring to teach them what we have to do when we become readers. A reader then has to take that word it and replace it with its appropriate noun. And we don't do that. We make assumptions about children's knowledge and makes it worse when children read a sentence and they can answer an odd question, we're satisfied with that knowledge. We don't go back and look at the, the grammatical components that make up that sentence. So can the child replace every pronoun with its appropriate antecedent? Can they tell us the verb tense? Is it happening now or in the past? Skilled readers will do all, all of that. Unskilled readers will look at you blankly. How did you know, you know, if you take a sentence, the boy came home? When is that happening? Is it happening now or is it happening in the past and how do you know? And you know because of the word came. And it's a real deep understanding of these basic words. And often when children struggle, that's taught in speech therapy. Well, it's, it's really, yeah, I mean, I'm really appreciating a lot about what you're sharing, right? And I just have a lot of empathy for, you know, for students who, or for kids who don't fit the, the norm, if you will. And, and I can relate because I, you know, my, my three kids are all very different, all different skills, different talents, different weaknesses, right? So I'm thinking, you know, and I'm thinking about, you know, listeners right now, parents perhaps who are, are listening and thinking, yeah, you know, my son or my daughter or, you know, or I know, you know, someone, a family friend who is struggling right now with, with, with reading. What advice do you have for them? What advice do I have for them? And then you asked about my reading program. I'll do the advice first. The advice is children must comprehend every single sentence that they read. It's not enough to read a paragraph and say, I've got an idea about it. Children like me who can grow up reading, you can get, get the general idea. Image I create in my mind is like a stick figure. Skilled readers create Rembrandts. And there's a huge difference. So you've read a lot of words and come out with just the basic information. So then you go back into it, into each paragraph and look at sentence by sentence because sentences connect. Pronouns help that connection. Do they get the pronoun connection? Rewrite every paragraph out. Again, your verb tense and pronouns, creating the image of what's going on in that sentence. So that's what I spend a lot of time doing with my students. And then the decoding comes on top of that. Why is that word a short vowel or a long vowel? So I, you know, I'm looking at things from the whole. I'm making sure they've got a really solid foundation of understanding language and particularly written language. And then on top of that, then comes the decoding. Why is that word what it is? So it's, it's very layered, but you've got- So maybe starting with you know, literature that they're really interested in and then- you know, trying to then make sure that, as you point out, like they're understanding sentence by sentence what, what's going on there and then layering on top of that the different sounds and things. But Culturally appropriate literature for early readers is critical. And I don't think this has been acknowledged for a long, long time because when I grew up, everyone around the world learned through Dick and Jane. I didn't. And then you had the next problem, well, she didn't learn because everyone else learned to read through them. So there's something wrong with her. So we're back into the deficit basket. And that's what we've got to get rid of. All right. So and then let's let's talk a little bit your program then. Is that something that's available for, for anyone? Is it something you do online? Available or, yeah. for anyone. You'll need an adult to work with a child or you can or you can come to me. 
but it starts by listening and then through listening we're looking at the text structure turning a book into a play so it becomes you don't have to read the whole lot you can read a small amount and then on top of that's decoding and making sure that they comprehend every single sentence you know just by what i've been saying all you know about the power of the pronouns the power of the verbs so basically what you were saying you know what parents could focus on your program kind of provides a scaffolding if you will to help make that more successful right so parents don't have to make it up themselves you're kind of providing that supports and yes we do need to teach decoding and decoding is a failing but the failing happens at a much deeper level than that and I don't think that's been acknowledged by many people and particularly with children who are articulate they couldn't have a problem they could should be able to do it they understand everything but the written word is quite different from the spoken word and so we're dealing with something that's quite new to them and we have to teach them that's how it works for me how long does your program typically take? Well, there... you know, it depends on the child and it depends on how hard they work and how, you know, how much effort they're willing to put in. Are they willing to listen to a book again and again and again? Or are they just going to listen to it once or twice? So motivation becomes a huge issue. So maybe break down a little bit more about how the, how the program actually... You know, I've written this. We're using two books. We're using a Disney, Disney, Walt Disney... A, Triumph of the American Imagination for the older students, and I've written it on Aliens Ate My Homework. I've written one, the first component. Once you get through that first component, students should be reading. And that shouldn't, it would take a week. So if you've gone from non-reading to reading in a week, that's not bad, is it? But to get <laughs> to the next level. Sure, a lot of parents would take that. Yes, to get to the next level, to read a chapter, and all, will depend on how much work you do. Okay. And it's, it's basically a self-paced thing for the, the parents and the, and the child. And if you work with an adult, to, you need to work with an adult, a confident adult, to know what to do and guide it. And I'm here. If you've got a question to call me up or talk to me, certainly available. And that's a critical compa a component of the program that you have access to us, to the writers of it, to say, what else going wrong? So that, you know, every child who goes through it should come out reading, reading and writing. So I'd love to um, also talk a little bit with you around the whole process of like labeling and, and diagnosing kids like you. You were given some pretty um, stark heavy news at a very young age for your son, which could have been pretty debilitating really, right? And I'm sure there's lots of other parents out there who've been told some, some pretty harsh things or some pretty difficult assessments and whatnot from, from their kids. Especially even right now with COVID, I think there's all kinds of pressures and tactics and, and you know, evaluations that are happening. I think in a lot of ways, just to have kids trying to conform to what the schools want them to do from a remote perspective. What's some of your um, perspective and advice on that for, for parents maybe who are dealing with? My perspective is that labeling is wrong, that the way we go about things, the way to special education is through this testing, which is wrong because we're not even testing the right thing. So what do you recommend parents do who, who maybe are dealing with an assessment or something or an evaluation that maybe they feel is, is not right or, you know, they're just they're being faced with this? You have to do it to get into special education. Okay, you have to do it. Put it aside. Don't look at it. Forget it. Teach the child to read. The two are not synonymous. If you've got a child who's got really poor results, let's change how we teach them. And finding a teacher who is willing to do that is the biggest challenge of all. 
and you know I don't what advice do I have for parents I just go back to you know when Nicholas was six and we had no money we had enough money how do you pay a tutor a hundred dollars an hour for a child who may not cooperate and and then what happens so my advice there's a lot of advice <laughs> do you know the name Dr Mary Helen Imordano Yang check her out she talks about emotions and learning and how emotions are tied to learning if you're terrified like Nicholas was in first grade his brain was shut down he was in fight and flight mode and your Helen Taryn Helper talked about this the polybagel theory Nicholas was in fight and flight nothing was going in nothing was going in. couldn't do it when I started to work with him and changed the teaching he was relaxed this is okay but when he flew he was totally relaxed we were laughing we were enjoying it then his brain is functioning fully and he can ask questions he can take in the information when children are stressed out parents they're not going to learn so we have to create an environment where you believe in them and unfortunately there is a cost to the family and I think it comes at the cost of a parent who is willing to give that child time to create an environment and like you said give them something they're interested in visit museums visit places that they're interested in read about it write about it when I was working with Nicholas I could not read a book to him and keep his attention the words just came too fast so I had to stop doing that and I had to read it myself turn that information into a poem ah now it's in a bite size now we can take it in now we can repeat it now we can ask questions so we are the ones who take it on and you think you can't I thought I couldn't teach Nicholas to read but I learned I had to because I couldn't trust the reading teacher at school who was going to give my son who's labeled the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching she is giving him standardized words standardized sentence standardized teaching and that's what put the fire in my belly you've got this kid who's labeled the worst kid ever don't expect him to learn like everyone else how are we going to change it and that's really what my story is about how I changed the teaching so that not only Nicholas could learn but teaching became so much fun and we were laughing and it's on my website too yeah those are listening right now I can't can't see your, your beaming smile but I think just with COVID and everything right now, like I really appreciate everything you, you, you've said, you know, just to, I think to summarize, you know, what I'm really hearing is one is you can't learn, a child can't learn, especially, but I think adults are no much different, but you can't learn if, if you're in a fight or flight mode, right? If you're, if you're stressed. And so there's so much that parents can do, not even just for, just outside of like teaching and, and educating, just creating that space where they have room to, to try, to, to experiment, to make mistakes and just to kind of laugh at life and how we how we model that right how we create that environment and that in itself is massive right any parent can and, and really need does need to do that and i'm speaking to myself as much as to anyone else because i know there's there's things i could do to relieve some some pressure at times that's one of the takeaways i got from you and and the other two and this is i think really expressed in a lot of my interviews and just talking with people too i think if anything COVID has shown us that it's really a fallacy and a, and a myth to think that formal education through schools is the only way and the one way for kids to to learn and honestly part of the package of being a parent 
is that we're engaged and involved in that. And we have a, a tremendous role that we can play and we need to play in creating the environment that helps because we know our kids better than anyone else, right? I mean, we can provide that customization and we can provide that unique support, that angle. We can experiment much more easily than, than a, a typical teacher in a, in, a, in a classroom can. I mean, they have, they have tons of constraints, of course. And yeah, I think that's, therein lies the challenge and the opportunity. And certainly your, your story is, is which you've written about as well in, in your, your memoir called Reversed. So I encourage people to, to check that out. We'll have a link to that in the, the show notes. That, yeah, anyone can do this. Like you said, you, you didn't see yourself as, you know, how, how am I going to do this? Right? We don't have the money. Do I really have the, the ability? You know, wow, I've got my own learning, reading challenges I didn't realize and overcame all of that. So I think it really shows to any parent that when you have the will, when you have the resolve, you will find the way. And laugh along the way. Yeah, I love what you said. <laughs> right? I think we have to take off our standardized approaches a little bit too. And just relax and let kids learn at, at their rate. You know, I think those... And because that causes a lot of pressure. They've got to do this by the end of first grade. And we think we have to drum it into them. Let's find another way of doing it. And that's really what this podcast is all about. And it's, it's, you know, it's an exciting time, I think, in the world. We're finding there are, there are different ways, different alternatives. And so There are alternatives. I think that's a, that's a critical one because I've listened to a number of your podcasts and I've been surprised at how interwoven thoughts have been. And just thinking there is another way. There is another way. Let's relax. Because I remember when I was, when Nicholas was seven, I mean, the stress levels that I felt I was under to get this kid to do something was just unbelievable. Because he can't do it, he can't do it. And then he can do these wonderful things. And now looking back, what would you tell that mom, with that stressed seven-year-old kid, what would you tell her now, looking back? Relax a bit. <laughs> Relax a bit more. <laughs> Just enjoy it. They will get there. They will do things yeah. you can't imagine. You know, I think one of my greatest moments was when Nicholas was seven, seven and a half, and he, we woke up one morning and I could hear this little voice in the lounge room and it was Nicholas reading. And that was a massive step of relaxation. When he got his PhD... Although I'm incredibly proud, I realised that was a community effort. But that first, when he was seven and a half and reading it, that was me. That was our family that did that. But just relax more. Laugh more. I've got a couple of videos about on Nicholas recently, talking to him about his learning. And they're worth watching, him looking as an adult, looking back on his own life. Yeah, so we're... Just to maybe wrap up then, where, where could people find out more about your program, about you know, your story, and connect with you if they have, have some questions? I am on, my website is loisletchford.com. I'm on LinkedIn, on YouTube. There's a lot on YouTube. I've actually been doing a lot of work on when learning is trauma because I didn't acknowledge when Nicholas was in first grade the trauma that occurred. So that's there. Facebook, LinkedIn, I've said. My um, teaching students with dyslexia is associated with loisletchford.com. Check it out. Look at it. We'll get more videos up on that, up and running on that. But reach out to me. I'm available through my website. Reach out to me. Ask any questions. And if you've got children struggling, believe they can learn to read. I mean, that's critical. Believe that they can. But the teaching has to change. Don't blame the child. Well, thank you today, Lois, um, for the the laughter and, and uh, just sharing your story. The world is grateful for, you know, all that you've done to turn what was a really difficult experience uh, early on as a, as a mom 
and now create a, a gift for, for so many kids to not only read, but to honestly believe in themselves and go on to do great, great things. That's exactly it. Thanks. Believe me. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. All right. Take care, Lois.